Hello again, everybody, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Industrial Cybersecurity Pulse podcast. I am host, I'm going to call myself host number two this time, Gary Cohen. And I'm thing one, Tyler Wall. <laughs> Thanks for being with us again. Uh, great podcast on hand today. Talk to uh, a friend of ours, Ethan Schmerzler. He's the CEO of Dispel, uh, which is a company that protects industrial networks, uh, uses zero trust. Very interesting guy. But, you know, we're not going to really talk about zero trust and we're not going to really talk that much about industrial networks. We talked to him about AI and it was a very interesting conversation. Yeah, he was uh, really had a lot of great things to say about AI and how it will definitely affect like the threat landscape and also about how it will impact um, more of the defender landscape, too. And one of the more difficult things with AI as well, just to before we even get into this conversation, is that threat actors aren't going to necessarily have these kind of barriers that we will have in terms of um, on the defender side, mostly because, I mean, the government will eventually put regulations in place on artificial intelligence and what um, we can legally do with it at least. And so uh, just the capabilities that we'll have is always going to be a little different than what the threat actors have. And I will tell you, at some point during our conversation with Ethan, he gave us what would have been a great name for this podcast, which is the cesspool of the internet. Not the cesspool of the internet our podcast is, but the internet is a cesspool. Maybe just the internet cesspool. There probably is a podcast called that somewhere, yeah? I'm sure it is. If not, I mean, we always have more space for podcasts, so I think we can create a podcast called The Cesspool. We're just throwing that idea out there for free. Any listeners who want to start a podcast, we're throwing it out there for free as our gift to you. Exactly. And my one question, of course, before we get into this uh, riveting topic is... Uh, where you've lived in many a places now, um, I, in your uh, lifetime, which which uh, place that you've lived in has been your favorite? See, the thing I like about these questions is I don't know what he's going to ask me every podcast, so it's like it. I mean, it's been all over the place. So I always have to gird myself for a question. Favorite place I lived uh, probably was Northern California. Lived in the San Francisco area. Grew up in a lovely town called Pleasanton, California, which is just as pleasant as it sounds, uh, which when I lived there wasn't huge. It's pretty huge now. Um, but yeah, I for whatever reason, Northern California still feels very home-like to me, even though I was only there from, I think, the fourth to the eighth grade. But I moved a lot, so it didn't imprint on too many places. But yeah, I think that's uh, probably my favorite. We were there for RSA uh, months ago at this point. But every time I go there, I'm like, Yep, this feels homey to me. I like this place. Uh, can't really afford to live there anymore, but I do like it. Yeah, it's an expensive place to live now, especially if you wanted to try and move back there, definitely. I also, I've lived in Chicago for so long now. One of the things I miss, and when I go to a place like San Francisco, I go, oh yeah, is topography, hills, mountains, water. I mean, we've got a nice big lake here, but like the ocean, all of those things I miss quite a bit when I'm uh, when I'm here in Chicago in the flattest place on earth. Yeah, they're very tall say. buildings, but not a lot of hills. No, no, there's not any kind of uh, yeah topography like that. All right, so we should probably talk something about cybersecurity at some point in time. Yeah, maybe for um, a minute. I know, I know, it's always tough to make that transition. So this is an interesting one for us because 
if you've been listening to the podcast, we talk about AI all the time because it's a kind of a source of fascination for both Tyler and I. And so when Ethan was going to come on, I met Ethan at S4 uh, out in Florida, Tyler's favorite place, uh, out in Miami. And we talked for a little while and we were talking about a lot of different things, um, you know, like moving target defense and all sorts of stuff. And so when we called him and asked him to be on the podcast, he said, I want to talk about AI. And I was like, great, let's talk AI. So we're going through, you know, the future of AI and cybersecurity, uh, how it's kind of a double-edged sword, as in there are pros and cons from an ICS standpoint. The defenders are using it, the attackers are using it. There are things that can go go wrong. Um, and really, one of the big topics that we talked about for some time is how AI can assist hackers in creating advanced attacks that, you know, e even good internal AI might not be able to, to spot. But really, the bigger threat is that humans will not be able to spot it. Yes, exactly. So if you're thinking about what he gets into, definitely is uh, social engineering phishing attacks and how, you know, it's the the prince of wherever it is again, the prince of India, prince of the Nigerian prince. Yeah. Uh, it's like, I don't even know where you're going here. Yes, the Nigerian <laughs> yeah. prince. Yeah, it's a, like the Nigerian prince email uh, scenario. You know, you get an email, it's very obviously a phishing email. Um, but with like new tools, new AI tools that are out there, like, for example, I'll give one that we're uh, constantly talking about uh, at Industrial Cybersecurity Pulse and our larger company itself is uh, ChatGPT and how now with ChatGPT, it's much easier for if threat actors wanted to, to create those uh, phishing emails that are much more coherent and uh, just seem like a real person on the other side, or at least something that's non-malicious. Uh, which would get you to maybe click on those links and download those files and this and that. So uh, with AI on the rise, phishing attacks and social engineering attacks are going to be something to definitely look out for and something that Ethan talks about a great deal too. So he brought up a term. It's something that I really like. So I was excited that he did. We're talking about recognizing these phishing attacks, the uncanny valley, which uh, listeners many have probably heard of, maybe some haven't, but it's that idea of... Um, if you see something that uh, has a human-like uh, appearance, whether it's a robot, whether it's uh, um, animation, 3D animation in a movie, uh, like the Polar Express would be a great example of this. Humans are so trained to see all of the minutia of how a human face moves and emotion and eyes that there's this valley between what is real or what is not. So you kind of, you when you look at something that's not fully real and it's not doing the things that your brain expects it to do, there's this feeling of like unease or maybe revulsion. You're just like, that. something's not right about that. So that's the Uncanny Valley, a really terrible definition of it. But he was talking about that with the, um, what, what did you say? I'm going to go with Nigerian prince because that's what it really is. I don't remember yeah. what you called it. That's what I said uh, in the end, yes. <laughs> yeah, you said Nigerian, sure is, you know, those phishing emails, sure, a lot of people fell for them, which is why they kept getting thrown out there. But when you got an email from the Nigerian prince, there was enough that was wrong about it that your brain went, this can't be right. Why is it? Why would a Nigerian prince be writing me and giving money to me? And all, well, look at all the grammar errors. And your brain could pick that stuff up pretty easily. Um, these AI-enabled modern phishing attacks they're going to look more realistic. They are going to be better at preying on our human desire to trust other people. So they're, they're going to get better at, you know, an AI attack may look 
for me, like I'm getting an email from Tyler and it's got Tyler's signature and it's in Tyler's voice and it references something that Tyler and I did together. So why would I not click that link? Tyler sends me links all the time. I, I click his links. I trust him. And it looks like it's coming from him. So um, AI will probably be able to eventually, if not already, leap that uncanny valley and, and uh, start fooling us dumb humans. Mm -hmm. And again, as we've said in a couple of these podcasts too, uh, it's important to remember that where we are right now in the AI landscape is as bad as it's going to be. So it's only going to get more realistic as time progresses. Thanks. Thanks, Tyler. That's a good You're one welcome. to go. Yeah. Very I feel thought. more comforted now. No, that's absolutely mm -hmm. true. So let's go ahead and bring in Ethan uh, and let him talk about the things that he's talking about instead of us just telling people about it. Mm. Uh, Ethan Schmertzler is currently the CEO of Dispel. Prior to starting Dispel, his background was in software development. He was previously an early stage venture capitalist in defense and cybersecurity. He holds a BA for Middlebury College and is also director of the National Defense Industry Association's New York chapter. Uh, without any further ado, and we like our ado here on this podcast, let's go ahead and bring in Ethan. All right, Ethan, thanks so much for being with us today. We're going to uh, talk talk a little bit about you, talk a little bit about Dispel, talk a little bit about uh, about the, the impact of artificial intelligence and cybersecurity, which uh, is probably going to be significant in the coming year. So thanks so much for agreeing to be with us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So I always like to start off just finding out a little bit about the person. Uh, you and I met one time before in S4 in Miami, but uh, but I'd like to to let our listeners know. So tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to cybersecurity and industrial cybersecurity. Yeah, uh, my I, I've been running Dispel for the last uh, eight or nine years now. Uh, my background before that was in uh, as a software developer, um, working on front-end interfaces, and then before that in a, a class of technologies called C4ISR, which are about... Uh, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance is the most specific area for this. And it was how do you build systems that can allow us to have communication networks that exist uh, that are very, very hard for even a machine learning, a sophisticated machine learning system even 10 years ago uh, to be able to locate, identify, and find. And so that evolved into a technology platform that's now being used for industrial control systems around the world because those are fundamentally physical assets that we have to keep hidden, even though they're communicating over the internet. Was cybersecurity something you were always interested in, or is this something you kind of just found found your way into over the years from software development? I think that I've always been fascinated in the idea of uh, security controls around them, uh, not necessarily the world of industrial control system cybersecurity. I think what drew me into that was that it was really just greenfield. Uh, so much money and effort had been spent on uh, on IT security, um, but no one had, and everyone was trying to basically take those IT tools and then smash them into OT environments and they, they really don't work very well. They don't translate terribly well over them because they've got a, their own unique uh, circumstances. And so what was fascinating about was taking all the experience we've had in IT about how to optimize those things and how do you actually bring that ease of use, that, that sort of the Apple-esque experience to old 30-year-old industrial control systems. Very interesting. So yeah, let's, let's, let's jump into uh, to AI a little bit here. So Tyler and I were at uh, RSA in San Francisco not too long ago, a few weeks ago. Uh, and a lot of the opening keynotes, a surprising amount of the opening keynotes were talking about the impact of AI and cybersecurity to the positive and the negative. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with the big question here. What does the future of AI and cybersecurity look like? What do you think we can expect in the next three to five years? Yeah, I think that the current generation of AI, uh, really popular AI uh, systems that people have seen have been about 
the creation of, of really convincing um, text. And so I think what we're going to see that come out is both on the offense capability, so creating much more sophisticated attacks to try to target people, so human-based uh, attacks. And then we're also going to see them on the support side of things, being able to identify and respond to questions and help people that are working inside of organizations protect themselves against those kinds of attacks. Um, the other thing that we're taking a look at is using these sorts of models to train them on other kinds of targeting data, right? A lot of the stuff that people are thinking that's fun and interesting to look at have been the text-based stuff. Um, but teaching these similar models on how to do target acquisition and reconnaissance, which is a typically very expensive manual step for humans in the attack chain, uh, if we can automate that or if attackers can automate that, that's going to uh, only accelerate the kinds of risks that organizations are facing. So I know, especially with AI, I know it can be perceived as kind of like a, a double-edged sword a bit, you know, two sides to every coin. Um, what, uh, can you elaborate on some of the pros and cons of AI uh, from an industrial control system standpoint? Sure. A lot of industrial control systems are still very much a manual process. Uh, humans are directly involved in controlling individual uh, machines, uh, programmable logic controllers, for example, that actually actuate uh, individual changes inside of a factory, right? And so the realm of AI won't necessarily get into that. What we are going to see is the ability for these tools to be able to, one, improve the kind of training we have available for us, um, improve the ability to pass on knowledge and information to new generations of technical controllers, um, and then ideally start being able to identify problems before uh, they're detected by human operators. A lot of What's been interesting is that a lot of the tools that exist already to do predictive maintenance, for example, and um, do supply chain engineering, those have already been automated in many respects. Those are fairly complicated, uh, but straightforward sets of Bayesian statistics that have existed for a number of years. Um, that's just how Amazon and, and uh, Walmart have optimized their warehouses. It's not humans making these decisions necessarily. It's, it's feeding data into algorithms and having those uh, give responses back. Um, where we're seeing the difference come in on the downside to your question is that the, the safety link oftentimes in industrial control systems is the problem is either they haven't implemented security controls that they should have uh, because they, they just haven't spent the time or money to do it, um, or they have, and now there's also still a human risk, which is that a human uh, believes that they're genuinely doing the right thing because of the information that they're getting, and then they make a mistake and they create a security risk for the organization. So yeah, with these risks of integrating uh, AI and IC or ICS, um, what are some steps that we can take to help mitigate these risks, especially with educating uh, us, you know, the, us humans with uh, this artificial intelligence and machine learning as that kind of continues? I think it's taking humans out of the loop, actually. The problem with AI and what makes it really impressive is that it, as it gets better and better, it's sort of like going through the uncanny valley in animation. You could for a while tell that a machine was producing something and you were reading it. And it wasn't quite human. Um, you, you knew what it was. You could, you could intuitively understand that there was something not quite there. As, these, as the weights get better in these AI models, you're going to see, or we're starting to see, even more and more human-like responses to conversations. And so the scale and the cost of doing large-scale sophisticated 
um, human targeted attacks is going to increase um, because the cost of doing them will decrease and it's a relatively inexpensive way of going after organizations figuring out a way to breach a very sophisticated cybersecurity system is really expensive getting a human being to make a mistake open a link and get malware on the computer that's easy relatively speaking so the solution may not be that we're going to train our way out of this i think that that doing training is going to still matter but it's also in part taking the knowledge that the human can give up as a mistake um, making that obsolete or making that so we can protect it even if a human is tricked and hands that information over or gets malware onto their device it doesn't matter because it can't affect the industrial control system uh, and the way you can do that is a couple fold it's uh, obscuring the way that the knowledge of how humans connect to these industrial control systems so that's using something like a moving target defense network where the underlying knowledge of the IP infrastructure that they're connecting to isn't relevant to what they're actually going to and it's also things like uh, network isolation and sandboxing so making sure that we never allow an endpoint that's connected to the internet to make a direct connection to a SCADA system they have to go through a disposable or compostable intermediary component which is really our, our uh, pushing that demilitarized zone out into that environment we can monitor it and then we can destroy it after that session is done so that we don't transmit any malware through those environments I, one of the things that you mentioned uh, there was a, about this social engineering attacks. A huge percentage of attacks are coming in through human error, whether malignant mm -hmm. or not, usually benign. Somebody clicks a link. So something uh, uh, one of the speakers at RSA talked about is, you know, the old phishing attacks, the old classic Nigerian prince attack. Pretty easy to detect that one. There were mistakes in the grammar. Why is a Nigerian prince reaching out to you? What are these new attacks that are using tools like GPT or any of the other AI tools that are out there? What are they likely to look like and how, how will they force the cybersecurity landscape to evolve? They're going to look a lot more like what you'd expect one of your colleagues to send you. Um, they're going to feel much more real. Uh, our ability as a human to be able to say, oh, I'm reading this, this looks like something from a Nigerian prince. That seems interesting, but odd. Whereas something from saying, you know, it was great to see you guys last weekend. Uh, you know, we saw you guys at RSA. Uh, here are some, I know you, your team had asked for some pictures from the event for their marketing stuff. Um, didn't get their email address shooting you this link here. Um, that might feel very real. Uh, that might, that might make, make a lot of sense. And so the, the it, they're going to get in under the radar. Um, the way we're going to deal with that is, I think one of the simplest ways is stop having people have trusted communications on essentially what's a public inbox, right? These email ad systems are not where you should be having those sorts of correspondences. Uh, we should probably be migrating them to private channels that are protected by multi-factor authentication. So I actually know uh, that you are who you are. Um, because we're probably not going to get every single person into their own independent Slack channels with everyone else, um, you, this might be the thing that actually makes uh, email encryption become a legitimate not in, become an adopted platform and it drives legitimacy for people to get their own um, their own PKI or their own uh, private key infrastructure and public key infrastructure that it can encrypt and identify that an email coming from Ethan is actually from Ethan and an email from Gary or for Tyler actually is from T Gary and Tyler. Um, that historically has been stuff that people haven't done. It's been a technology that's been available for years, but email encryption is a good guarantee that the email you're actually getting is actually from you. How has the, I'll call it the democratization of AI tools like GPT, everybody can use it. Everybody can mm -hmm. go out there and use it, whether you want to use it to help you with your marketing report or to try to write code. 
How has the democratization sort of giving it to the masses impacted this industry? So I think there's an important question about the democratization of it and who's actually giving it away. Um, the algorithms themselves are expensive to make, but what's incredibly expensive is the training that that algorithm then does against bodies of literature. So these are known as the, the weights. So when you have an AI model that's being trained against something, what you really, by itself, if you just have an untrained AI, it's sort of like an infant, it doesn't actually know how to deal with the world. Um, you have to train it against information. And once it has that body of data, that's called the weights. And so an AI algorithm with the weights is what's really powerful. The reason why I emphasize that is because in order to do that training, that requires a lot of processors and a lot of processing time, which is millions of dollars. And so when you look at what's been made available, um, tools like OpenAI is publicly available to access, to interface with it, but the weights themselves and the algorithm itself are actually privately held. Um, what you saw Meta do uh, the other week where they released their algorithm plus that weight analysis that they've had with it, that's now in the wild. And so the cost of doing that analysis is now publicly available. And so the reason that distinction is really important is because once someone has both the algorithm and then the backend system behind it, those weights, they can now use that for whatever purpose they want. Um, that won't necessarily change. Humans have done nefarious stuff on the, on the cesspool of the internet for, for forever. Um, this might just accelerate the speed at which people are doing that. Um, just because though you can produce this information doesn't mean that we should just say, oh, well, it's on the wild. Well, people are already putting bad stuff out there on the internet. Um, it doesn't absolve us of the responsibility for trying to curtail that information being out there and disinformation being pushed out there. Um, you know, it, just because there might be a torrent of it, that doesn't mean that that's it and we have to give up. I think you also just gave us the title of this podcast, The Cesspool of the Internet. I think that that's been the title of the Internet for, for a very, <laughs> very long time at this point. <laughs> I think we can all agree on that. Sorry, go ahead, Tyler. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, uh, let's kind of shift gears, gears here to uh, manage threat detection. So I guess, could you kind of walk us through what that is and um, how cybersecurity companies can bolster their strategy, strategy, excuse me, to prepare for AI? Yeah, so threat detection is the idea of, of trying to identify when it's sort of in the name. You're trying to identify a threat inside of your environment. And there are a couple classical ways that we've done that. Um, the first one, if you all remember antivirus from the early 2000s, those were what were called signature-based defenses, where we would have, a, we'd know what the code looked like in an identical format, sort of like the way your antibodies work in your body. Um, if it's at all different, you're going to get the flu again. So signature-based defenses are kind of good because they'll basically get most of the run-of-the-mill stuff, um, but anything at all novel, they're going to miss. They used to. Uh, and so then we stepped up from there and we talked about heuristic-based defenses, um, which would look for behavioral patterns. The problem what you're going to see with AI is that the kind of attacks might become more sophisticated uh, in terms of the creating these permutations. And so it's essentially like having training an immune system against a virus, but then you've got some mad scientist who's creating thousands and thousands and thousands of iterations of that little, of that virus so that you might get sick once, but you think, ah, oh, well, I've got that, I've got an immunity to that, but now I'm being bombarded by things that are just slightly different enough. So if signature-based defenses and potentially heuristic-based defenses might be challenged by that, then we start relying on, on threat hunting, um, which is still to this day, a somewhat human element. Um, it requires that you take a more sophisticated look of, all right, if this, if this software is acting in a certain way, why is it acting in a certain way? 
Um, it, are there things that we need to start having more cognition about, which it requires at this point, human security analysts looking at it. Um, it's probable that as you train uh, AIs to look at, sort of look over the shoulder of a human being making those judgment calls, you might get better and better and better at that because, or the machine might get better at that because it's able to say, all right, I can kind of not gain, not gain judgment, but gain a, a statistically probable chance of saying, in these circumstances, this should not be happening or this should be happening. Um, so there's a couple different, to bring this all together, there's a couple different tools that are available in the threat hunting toolkit. Um, as we can train AIs to sort of have that human level judgment, I think that will help protect us against the AI on the other side trying to break down the door, same the way we've dealt with uh, quantum encryption. Uh, how can AI-assisted hackers uh, in creating advanced attacks that even the best internal AI cannot defend against? That is not a whole question. It sounds like the question is, if you have an AI-assisted attacker, how do you, is there, is the AI-assisted defender uh, at a disadvantage or are they at parity or are they still able to maintain an operational advantage? So they'll be most likely at a disadvantage. Um, and so if you have an AI-assisted attacker, um, they're going to be at, at an advantage against a defender. And the reason why is twofold. One, the attacker has the point of opportunity. Um, if you're using a traditional static defense model, so you have firewalls, privilege access management tools, identity access management tools, different heuristic-based defenses, threat hunting, all that sort of stuff. At the end of the day, if the attacker knows where your network is and they know who the people are that they're going against, then they have all the time in the world to keep working the problem. That hasn't changed. Before AI was there, that was still true. Um, the fact that you have AI just makes kind of at this point makes the human side of the attack, in other words, the cheap way of getting in, way easier. Um, an AI-assisted defender might teach you uh, how to talk about these sorts of things with your employees, um, but until you get better, say, certificate-based uh, protection against emails coming through and filtering that out, uh, that's not going to stop a human being from clicking efficiently right now, right? So it's going to give the advantage to the attackers. It's the reason why uh, you're seeing government frameworks get ahead of this and start arguing, especially in the defense industrial base, that that static-based defenses and fighting that defender versus offen offensive uh, war is just a losing battle. Um, and you need to make it so that the cost of going against uh, infrastructure is significantly higher. And you do do things like uh, that by creating those compostable systems, those moving target defense networks. Um, those shifting dynamic proxies. It basically, the whole point of this is to make it more expensive, AI or not, to go against a set of infrastructure. So another question for you here, uh, and this one's fully formed thought, uh, mm -hmm. so should be understandable this time. Uh, in terms of AI-driven threats, uh, what are some novel or unexpected attack vectors that organizations should be prepared for? Whether that could be ones maybe on the rise that are maybe unexpected or, uh, just reallocating to another place as well to just kind of protect that vector as well. I'm going to say that the interesting, the most interesting one that would get under the radar would be the going old school. So combining an AI with a uh, robotic arm that can handwrite notes and start sending uh, written notes to people as a way of conducting really sophisticated phishing attacks against people. So establishing relationships with someone, 
um, saying it was nice to meet you at so-and-so conference, or I'm sorry, we didn't get to connect. Uh, coming up with novel ways to go after people that way, to build trust. And so I think stepping out from that one specific circumstance, what you might get, and, and really what you're doing is you're trying to outsource the attack to something which is relatively inexpensive. In this case, it's an AI. But coming up with uh, playbooks that you can use to build training and trust and rapport with someone to then use that to then exploit that uh, that rapport to then get access to an environment. So I want to uh, I, I kind of want to have a longer conversation with you about this, but you've mentioned moving target defense a few times, and you and I have discussed this before. Can you kind of give us an idea of how can you use moving target defense to help guard against AI? What can it do for you in that situation? Yeah. So. Moving target defense is an evolution of network topology. Um, and so what does that actually mean? People have been very familiar about you have to encrypt your data when it goes up to you. Like if I'm sending my information to the bank, I should encrypt it so people can't read when I'm sending them. That makes a lot of sense. What encryption doesn't do is it doesn't do anything to obscure the fact that I am communicating with my bank. Anyone who looks at the network traffic knows that I'm talking to my bank. Um, and what that could do is say that that's more interesting information. Um, another example would be is that when corporations have internal networks, they often buy a block of internet space, of IP space, so that any traffic going to that block of IP space is known to belong to this bank or this institution or this industrial control system. And often those IP addresses don't change. So once I know where that IP block is, and you can look these things up, it is trivial to go after them. You get to now work that problem. Uh, you can, in fact, look online. There are websites that have uh, that are essentially search engines where you can say, I'm looking for this kind of, uh, of industrial control system. Show me all the ones that have been found on the internet. And you can just look at that. And, and those are essentially free databases, um, which is kind of dumb because that means that you've now taken the whole element of, of the hardness of, hey, go find my network. You've taken all that difficulty away, right? An attacker has that data. The point of moving target defense networks um, which used to be called reconnaissance resistant networks, which really gets to their core, is that they are designed to make that first step, that reconnaissance stage, uh, really, really expensive. And even if someone does gain target acquisition, I do not know that this IP address is associated with this organization. In 24 hours, in 12 hours, in six hours, that IP address is gone. And it's not just that the, we're doing IP switching on the same box, that physical box you were connected to, the virtual infrastructure you were going to, is gone and it's been spun up someplace else. And there's no way to identify that hey, just because I'm connecting with this IP address doesn't mean that I'm sending information to my bank. It could be that I'm sitting at home watching Netflix. And so there's no way for an attacker to get that kind of intelligence from that front-facing door. Um, and it changes always all the time. And so in real life, because moving target defense networks have been deployed for the last eight years now, um, things like roughly 60% of all the hops grown in the United States, the farms that run them, the irrigation systems for them are run on moving target defense networks. Uh, water systems for a lot of the major cities in the United States run on moving target defense networks. Oil and gas systems run on them. Uh, and the reason why is because it raises the cost of successfully going after infrastructure. And so the cost savings are huge to organizations because they're no longer always under attack. They don't have to always be defending so aggressively all the time. Doesn't mean you get away with those other technologies or the other security suite, you absolutely need them, but it gives you breathing room. I think when we talked to the, uh, a little while on this, you talked, you, you compared the defense aspect of it to our nuclear arsenal. We shouldn't know mm -hmm. where these things are at all the time. We wanna keep moving these things so someone can't attack them. 
yeah, it's exactly the concept of saying, let's go stop having castles that are on the tops of hills and let's put them into nuclear submarines, which you can hide underneath the waves. I think another way of thinking about it is it, it's like being on a battlefield. You're absolutely going to still want body armor and, and tanks and artillery. But imagine if you had an invisibility cloak while you're out there, too. No one's going to say, oh, we don't want that. Um, I mean, we already push uh, camouflage as much as we can. We should be doing at least camouflage. Uh, on, on the internet as opposed to running around in red coats. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. Uh, as far as, especially in regard to critical infrastructure, I, I know the government and the regulatory bodies are always sort of chasing the attackers a little bit, but are there any specific regulations or standards right now that govern the use of AI in cybersecurity or is it, or is it just open field? I don't know the answer to that question. I know that, that legislatures certainly uh, holding a number of summits and hearings around um, AI, but to my knowledge, I don't know if anything has actually passed yet. Hmm. It'll be interesting to see where this develops over time as people start using it, as it becomes more of a threat. But um, there's also, I think, the I, I don't know if you can answer this one or not, but are there ethical considerations that we need to take into account when deploying artificial intelligence in, in cybersecurity? Sure. So AI, AI only knows what it's been fed, right? So AI can work because it's consumed vast amounts of data. Um, this is where we train the weights from. And so a couple things. One, what is it being fed? Um, what, what data is, is it looking after? We've already seen that, um, that you can have AIs that are trained uh, to have, show certain kinds of biases. Um, they can they're not actually giving you factual information. They sound very authoritative. Um, you know, it's a it's a thoughtfully written document. It gives back to you, but it's not actually fact checked by anything. And so, whatever you fed into it is what it's going to spit back out at you. And so, you're going to get if you've give you know it's it's the old uh, it's the old saying right garbage in garbage out. If you give it bad data to, to feed on, whether it, it's uh, inaccurate, it's racist, it's just bizarre right if it doesn't if it's got it's going to give you back whatever you gave it um and so going back to this if you're feeding it information from the internet it's fed it's read a lot of weird stuff on the internet and so you the risks with it from the ethics perspective are one are humans relying on stuff that they think is true because a machine told me and it sounds very thoughtful but it's utter garbage um then that's going to be a problem because humans are going to make bad judgment calls from that um and then it's who's making decisions about what kind of data are we feeding these things? Um, and then certainly if we start feeding inaccurate data that deals with personal information to these systems, that's going to be caught up in that web. And so we have to be careful when we start opening this up to gather data and be trained by the general public, what it, making sure that we were at least being thoughtful about screening out information that could be damaging or could be personal, that shouldn't be in these sort of databases. But when you say garbage in, garbage out, we're a media company. So when yeah, GPT came out, we immediately started running experiments of how would this work if we wanted to try to get it to write an article for us? And so sure. I would put things in like, uh, tell me about an industrial cyber attack on the oil and gas industry. And it would spit out a wonderfully, ah, wonderfully written, a well-written piece mm -hmm. that sounded very authoritative. And then I'd start checking it. Is this mm -hmm. true? Is this true? Is this true? About 40% of it was accurate. <laughs> And the other 60 was like, boy, that sounded really good, but I can't find any other source in the world that corroborates that information. Yeah. And it, and it does, and it puts it out in a really thoughtful way. And you read it and go, that's interesting. 
which is a scary thing. Exactly what you said, which is how many people are now going to look at that and go, sounds accurate, looks accurate, must be accurate. Mm -hmm. Absolutely correct. So I know what we're going to run into as we start to get more guardrails, especially on the U.S. side, um, it's like within uh, AI regulation, because that's it's definitely coming. Right. It's not a matter of if it's when. Um, but of course, with threat actors like they don't have guardrails, they don't have to be uh, contained by their own laws. So I guess when we're talking about things like deep fakes and AI cloning, right, or AI cloning, AI voice cloning specifically. Um, what mm -hmm. kind of impact are those going to have on social engineering attacks? It's going to get really ugly. The, <laughs> I mean, that, it's going to... So humans like to trust people. Humans inherently are... are even, even the biggest cynics in us all, humans want to, to maybe trust other folks or they want to establish relationships. Um, we're, we're very, very social creatures. As they get better, it's going to be harder. Um, and so the way that we're going to safeguard against these things is establishing this AI is going to push us on the internet to require greater authoritative trust of who you, who identifying who you actually are. Um, because most of our interactions are done through email with the public, email encryption is, I think, going to become, need to become much, much more critical uh, and actually tying that to identities. This has kind of been the anathema of, of what the internet was about originally, which was that it should be open, it should be free, we should do whatever we want on it. Um, the problem is that that sort of required that there was an inherent level of trust on those networks um, and that people wouldn't abuse them. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that you could just tell an email server, you, you could get into a command line, you could just tell an email server that the email came from whomever you want it to. And it would just accept that and say, okay, that's fair. I'll, I'll put that email into our database from that. And we're going to have to get away from, um, I think, I think that level of uh, anonymous trust, especially in the way we communicate and especially the way that we can send messages onto people's devices. You know, if people want to go into Reddit and deal with whatever there's there, fine, that's in its own contained space. But from a, a corporate governance perspective of protecting networks, um, having a vetted system where it's not just based on the SEO of the website or something. It's actually based on some kind of certificate authority. Uh, that kind of implementation is going to be really critical. Yeah. I mean, I know in the past, right, up through last year and even into this year, uh, ransomware, ransomware as a service has been what the proliferation is. Um, mm -hmm. But I can definitely see in the next three to five years, I mean, social engineering attacks jump to the top just because of um, the new beginnings of proliferation of AI and um, the, how that can be used for those social engineering attacks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. This, this was a great conversation. Thoughtful conversation. Won't be the last time we talk about AI. So uh, thanks so much for, uh, for diving into this with us and uh, giving some of your opinions and thoughts on it. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here. And we think, we think this was the real version of Ethan Smartzler. Might have been the AI version. We don't really know. He looks real. He sounded real. But as we were saying earlier, we don't know who we're talking to right now. <laughs> it's all up in the air. <laughs> okay, thanks so much for being on. Thank you very much. It was really nice to talk to you guys.
There you have it, folks. Ethan Schmerzler, CEO of Dispel. Really interesting conversation about AI and, and what its impact will be on cybersecurity and specifically on ICS, OT cybersecurity, uh, which is what the, the company and what Ethan has been dealing with for quite some time. Um, I, I want to go back to, and we, we mentioned it a little bit in the intro, but this like human desire to trust people and the fact that AI is is going to be able to exploit that. The, the, he talked about how, you know, you will kind of outsource this attack vector. You The AI will be used to essentially build rapport with humans and then exploit that rapport that you build is, you know, it looks friendly. It looks real. It's built something up with me or Tyler. And then we go, yeah, that looks safe. And then down we go. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, and well, some of the, other, oh my English is my first language. Uh, one of the other things he talked about too, uh, was the idea of managed threat detection with AI and how, as it sounds like managing your, uh, <laughs> the detected threats with the artificial intelligence to help identify them. And that kind of builds into the grander idea too, of vulnerability management with artificial intelligence, which we've talked about before with some other guests, you know, that's the prospect of using, AI to help weed out which vulnerabilities are uh, important and which you can kind of maybe put on the wayside. Because, I mean, a lot of vulnerable you, you'll get a lot of vulnerabilities in your systems, um, but some of them are, are there's definitely be some that are much more critical than others. And so having AI to help uh, kind of hone in on those uh, more more important ones is definitely beneficial for your uh, control systems. I mean, that's what AI is good for, right? I mean, it's it's like uh, Ethan talked about. It's garbage in, garbage out. If you put good information in, then the AI or IA will spit out good information back to you. So it's great at routinizing things that a human shouldn't be used for. But I, I think, and it's probably not people in cybersecurity saying this, but a lot of people's gut reaction to AI is uh, the machines are going to replace us and humans won't be necessary. And the AI will replace some human tasks. But a lot of those tasks are the tasks tasks that we shouldn't have been doing in the first place, you know. Especially in ICS OT in that space, it's a it's a high touch industry. It is an industry where humans are still going to be required to do a lot of this work. It's just hopefully AI on the defense side will help um, routinize and take care of some of these repetitive tasks that you know humans will not have to go blind searching through thousands of vulnerabilities like Tyler suggested or, or those sorts of things where where AI can provide a more robust defense. And obviously it can go, it can parse through that kind of information a lot faster than either Tyler or I could do it. But I don't think we're in a situation, at least now, where it's going to be replacing people on the plant floor. No. And it's also important to remember too, there's a fallacy that um, because AI is such a big deal now that threat actors are just going to be so much more powerful which isn't necessarily false, but you have to remember that also on our side, on the defender side, we also have AI now, right? So it's essentially just kind of raising up the boat a bit. Now it's like always gonna be a little lopsided, right? Because again, uh, threat actors have much more free reign. They don't really have to follow any sort of rules or governance. So they'll always be ahead. But um, it's important to remember too, though, that we all have access to it. It's not just uh, one side of the equation getting that access. I think training then becomes doubly important to, to your employees. You know, I'm sure they've got some training about how to avoid phishing attacks. And but that's going to become really important now as these phishing attacks get savvier and more realistic and more exploitative. Exploitative? Is that a word? I'm going to pretend it is. Yeah. yeah. I pronounced it wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's a word. Um, 
to be able to recognize these things. So you you don't have employees from all over falling for these things and putting your your networks at risk. But if you do want to see some excellent human content, uh, human generated in its purest form, uh, you should definitely visit industrialcybersecuritypulse.com or icspulse.com if you like the shorthand version where we have excellent content just like this. Uh, we do this podcast goes up every other Tuesday and we have expert interview videos. We have regular articles and a list of vulnerabilities. If you don't have access to AI, you can check there and see if you have any uh, vulnerabilities that we're kind of tracking. And uh, if you want to reach out to us, my email, I'm not going to give you my phone number, is twall at cfemedia.com. And I am at G Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, at cfemedia.com. Thanks for uh, tuning in again on another another round of the podcast. We'll see you guys. Well, we won't see you guys next time. You guys will hear us next time, which again, sounds really awkward, but mm-hmm. we uh, we look forward to talking to you again. <laughs>